Hi, I'm Ann Delisi. And I'm Chef James Regato. And in this episode of Essential Cooking, we talk with Zach Topinski from Urban Rust Brewing about the rigors of becoming a certified Cicerone, the history of Oktoberfest, making beer and kombucha, and being a victim of his own success. You guys are just killing it. I can't even get beer anymore. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. We're battling our way back. You know, we've had a, a long road since March, but uh, we're getting our capacity back up and starting to fill the tanks more and more. We got a couple new ones that actually just went online this week. So oh, that's a new little expansion. Yeah. I think, you know, b- people got to realize, um, you know, the beers you make are not just like, you know, pump it out a few days, ferment and, and go to tank. I mean, you yeah, got, you got <laughs> conditioning. everybody's always asking, does it come out beer on the other end? I mean, uh, most of our, our lagers are 10 week beers from start to finish. Yeah, so wow. it's an incredible amount of time uh, and patience. Um, and I think that's what I really like about brewing. It forces you to, to have some, some humility um, and just let that beer do its thing. Let it sit uh, in, in the cold freezer and, and mellow out. Michigan beer has been, a wild 10, 15 year run. I mean, you're talking about like, we kind of got famous, I feel like for a minute for like huge percentage stouts and bourbon barrel. I mean, Michigan, you know, we obviously have, you know, you get a lot of your big, you know, dragon's milk and your, you know, uh, KBS. A lot of our beers for a long time were like juggernauts, Jolly Pumpkin with their incredible sour program. I feel like Michigan beer was famous for just being like rock and roll, like loud in your face. Um, and those are all great beers. But what I lo- what is so special about Urban Rest to me is like, you're making like, Pilsner. You're making like lot like clean, tight, almost like grandpa beer in, in, in theory, but there's a reason why, like, you know, grandpas are like wise. And like, you know, <laughs> gr- grandpas are like effective and like, you know, they they make things that last. And I think that's what I love about your breweries. Cause like when I started drinking Urban Rest, I was like, oh my God. It was like listening to like it was like finding like a band your dad listened to that you didn't know about. It's like discovering, you know, like the Rolling Stones or something. It's so classic. You know, talk to me about your philosophy about brewing. So, I mean, really, that's exactly it. Uh, We talk a lot in the brewery about slow and low. Um, You know, we want to kind of change the ideology that small brewers can't brew lager. You know, it it was a massive industrialized uh, thing with Budweiser and the consolidation of uh, the large uh, brewing companies. But the little guys can make lager, too, you know, and I want to bring that back. And I've always really appreciated uh, the that lager, that crisp style that you had when you were with your grandpa or your dad or, or whatever it is. And the little guys can make lager too. We don't have the production efficiencies quite uh, the same. And so tank time is really limited uh, in a brewery like ours. It takes, you know, four times as long to make a lager as it typically does in ale. And so to dedicate that time and space to that lager, um, you have to have uh, you know, a, a passion for it and a love because it's not at all about about making money. Uh, if we were doing that, we were just we'd just be cranking beers, you know, left and right. But yeah. I want I want to have that nice passion that you can taste uh, and maturity that you can taste uh, over a, a, a you know great deal of time. So, uh, Zach, how far in advance do you plan when you're going to start a new beer, or how does it must be this incredible schedule and the timing must be so delicate, like? when we're going to finish something, when we're going to start something. How does all that work? It is very delicate. And my production assistant, um, you know, is it's painful for him because we really, we let the beer do its thing. And sometimes, you know, you want to think it's going to, t- going to finish in, in 28 days and it might take 40, you know, when that beer is done, That's that beer is in longer. charge. Wow. <laughs> it is, you know, and so we're not stuck to a production schedule that that beer has got to come out that day. If it's not ready and it's not tasting the way that we want it to taste, it just sits and waits. And, and that sometimes is frustrating. We've been down to two and one beers in the past and we've had to actually close the brewery with beer in the back that was almost ready but not quite there and 
that's what it's all about for me. You know, like that's a representation of who I am, what the company you know wants to to put out there, and so. There's no point in releasing it a week early. When it's ready, it's ready, and that, that beer is in charge in our facility. And it can be frustrating um, for everyone, including myself, but uh, that's it. That's the, lo- the law of the land. Mm-hmm. The idea of the brewery, the mission of the brewery, and being able to communicate that directly to our customers, through our staff, through our beers, the way we pour our beers, yeah. um, we were able to tell a story, and that's what it's all about. Now, but you also pivoted, though, because for a while there, you were bringing it to people's doors. Yes, and we still are actually. Uh, You're still delivering. Yeah, we're still doing delivery. We still do curbside pickup, and so we pivoted in March, uh, right away. Actually, my, my I have a uh, newborn son that was born in mid-April, I and remember that. you know, just a month before, we had to completely pivot the business. My wife and I, nine months pregnant, we canned everything down that we could, and uh, and we started doing delivery, curbside pickup. We even did a little bit of local distribution at that time, but since we've opened back up, we haven't been able to, to yeah. keep up with that. So you can still go online and order your beer. Correct. To your door. Yeah, urbanrest.com slash to go is the is the place for that. That to me is a silver lining of 2020, my friends. That, beer like, at your door. You can have Zach you know, or somebody <laughs> in your company bring me Urban Rest beer to my house. Ironically, house. you could do that before even COVID <laughs> hit and no one was doing yeah, it. Yeah. You know, and we've had so many people come out and be like, oh my gosh, are you gonna keep this up? And like it's great. And it's a direct consumer yeah, relationship. And that's sure. what we really want, especially for the small guy to be able to survive. We have to serve direct to consumer. I'm not gonna be able to compete on a shelf with Bells or Founders or Budweiser or any of those guys, uh, we need the extra margin associated with with going direct to consumer. So any opportunity to do that, we'll take it. That's great. So, Zach, I was reading about beer this morning. I'm no expert, that's for sure. Beer apparently is the oldest recorded recipe in the world, like yeah. 5,000 BC. I think that's a pretty incredible thing to see that this has got this amazing history. Like this it's, has gone back so far. That's part of the reason that I really love beer. I mean, the foundations of civilization and the planting of, of you know, wild grasses and barley and, you know, things that people made beer from, uh, these are directly associated with. So the historical aspect of, of, of brewing to me and the ties with civilization are just incredibly, incredibly interesting. Now, the mead guys, uh, which is honey wine, will kind of go back oh, yeah. and forth with They're the beer guys <laughs> about, you know, the, uh, the oldest fermented beverage, but we'll take it today. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so is the word Cicerone? Cicerone. Cicerone. Correct. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because you have gone through um, some pretty extensive, I guess, certifications or whatever when it comes to making beer. So I want you to talk about what that's like and how you get certified at the level that you're at. It sounds pretty intense to me. So uh, I'll give you a little short history behind it. Uh, 11 years ago, I started at a local beer distributor right out of college. And that beer distributor was very focused on education. Uh, The Cicerone certification program was kind of in its infancy at that time. A Cicerone is a Latin uh, word for steward. And so the Cicerone certification program uh, mirrors the sommelier certification program that we have for wine uh, in that there are multiple levels of certification um, and the knowledge associated with that in order to pass those. And so I have uh, become now one of two people who have uh, passed the advanced certification in the state of Michigan. Uh, shout out to Annette May, who's the, uh, the, the other, other counterpart there, who's been very inspirational to me um, personally and professionally. Um, but yeah, there's a... Um, you know, that one level above advanced, which is master. And they take you through everything from keeping to serving historical aspects, uh, distribution aspects, uh, production, ingredients. I mean, really everything from A to Z. How, so ma- what- how many masters are there in America? 
I you know? believe there's about 14 in the world right wow. now and wow. advanced there. Wow. We're talking right around 100 in wow. the world. So, you, And you're going for master? Oh, uh, yeah. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> so what is that like? Talk about going in to take this certification and what that experience is like. Well, a lot of folks, they, they joke and they say, oh, you went in, you tasted a bunch of beer. You know, <laughs> it's a... Uh, it's basically 250 short answer, short answer, fill in the blank questions uh, over a number of uh, of days. So it's two different days that the test is, uh, and then they take you through a sensory panel as well, uh, three different sensory panels, uh, and then about 12 um, essays. And so, I mean, I've literally essays? wrote, yeah, 12 wow. essays. Uh, it's a timed exam. They keep you in a room. They take your phone. They seal it all up. Everything like that. You can't. Uh, leave the premises. It's a very, very serious uh, uh, certification. Um, and so it required uh, years of rigorous training. My wife pouring me examples of, of spiked beers that had off flavors in them, identifying different styles based on, uh, you know, appearance, aroma, flavor, you know, all that stuff. And so it's really uh, identifying uh, all the ins and outs associated with it. Do you know, like, when you leave, if you passed? Do they no, call you later? No, months later. Months wow. later? Months later. Yeah, they're all hand done, uh, checked by all the master cicerones and there are only I think three that are employed by the actual certification program themselves so uh, they all all check them by hand and so it's it's a number of months you know the decompression associated with that and the days following and wondering if you pass and how you <laughs> yeah. could have you know done better in certain sections uh, is pretty intense Celebrate 75 years of public radio in Detroit with WDET. As our spring fundraiser commences, let's unite to support what makes Detroit unique. 75 years of people-powered radio. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap Donate in the mobile app. So it's October, right? So you're seeing a lot of Oktoberfest. I feel like there's, a, there's kind of like a misunderstanding with Oktoberfest because isn't it typically a September event? Yeah, so they started pushing it back um, in the mid-1800s uh, to early September because the weather was so bad. Right. You know, and so originally uh, the festival had started in 1810 uh, with the marriage of Princess Therese and Princess Ludwig. And so it was a big deal in that area at the time because Napoleon had really ripped through uh, that Bavarian region. And so... Um, he had also denied that Prince Ludwig married a Russian princess. And so he had approved the, the marriage of um, the Princess Therese. And so it was a big celebration that they had uh, after the fact to celebrate Germanic culture. They did horse races and, um, you know, all kinds of uh, dances and costume contests and, uh, of course, um, beer. <laughs> so yeah, so so is that why Oktoberfest the beer itself kind of has like a, a style to it, like a malty kind of like that is that beer from that was that a specific beer brewed for these celebrations? Correct. Yeah. Yep. And so it's a little bit stronger than your normal everyday beer, and kind of uh, in the spirit of the festivities, yeah. they would make a little little stronger of a beer. And so it's still only limited to six breweries inside a very specific demographic. And so all the beer that's served. At Oktoberfest in Germany is is the same six breweries wow. it's been for hundreds of years. That's pretty cool. Have you ever gone over there? I have it? not. I oh have my not. god! Uh, it is not Come on. all the international trips, and, and yeah, yeah, it just not has not aligned for me yet. It's definitely on my bucket list. I mean, it's it's if not the largest, one of the largest festivals in the world. It is the largest beer festival. Two million gallons are consumed within a two week span, and so 
you know, we're talking upwards of 20 million servings of beer. Wow. Uh, it's it's a, an astronomical amount. All right, so we're going to go next. As soon let's as we can it. go, let's Zach, I'm going yeah. to go with you. So let's talk about one of the things I love to drink, which is kombucha. And you guys have oh gone, God, you guys have gone into that world as well. So talk about the similarities between brewing beer and making kombucha and how different those two operations are. Beer is typically... Uh, uh, all Saccharomyces, which is basically brewer's yeast. Uh, bakers use it as well all the time. Um, a lot of different industries use it. But um, where kombucha and beer separate is that kombucha is a, a mixed culture. And so there is not only a little bit of yeast in there, but also bacteria and microorganisms. And so uh, they actually need oxygen in order to replicate. And, and so does beer. But at a certain point, oxygen can become a deterrent for beer, whereas for kombucha, it's it's needed for that culture to, to survive. And so they're also different in that the types of sugars that they ferment. Uh, kombucha is typically a sweet tea made with a you know a simple sugar like a sucrose or a dextrose, uh, whereas beer is made from the sugar of malted barley, which is typically a um, main component of maltose. So when did you? Why did you start making kombucha? So I started making kombucha <laughs> actually because uh, my wife and I we were doing so much sensory. I had some gut issues. I had uh, you know some. The, the mixed culture that I had going on in my stomach, I just needed to balance things out a bit. And so naturally we're fermenting a ton of different things in the house. And my wife's like, I'm going to check out this kombucha. Uh, my wife is the, uh, my business partner as well as the head brewer. Um, and she makes all the kombucha there. And so um, she put together our first batches. And since then we've had the same culture going. And so we pitched that same culture now for 11 years since we fermented our first batches of, of kombucha and Beer yeast does not survive that long after a number of generations. It starts to mutate and act a different way. Um, but yeah, we just started doing it at home and it, it normalized me. And then when we opened the brewery, we said, let's stick five gallons on and let's see uh, if people respond to it. And to this day, we have tons of people that have never even had our beer. They come specifically and only for our kombucha. It is so good. I mean, I'm a kombucha snob. I've, I've driven all over the country. I've like hit up kombucha bars on the West Coast. It is the best kombucha. I mean, I, I sound like, I said, I'm, like I'm a super fan right now, but the kombucha is, I mean, Mary's a genius. Her kombucha is unrivaled. I mean, I, I would like sell my house to invest in Mary going <laughs> national. Cause uh. I mean, she, yeah. So if, if you haven't, if you haven't been to Urban Rest Tether Kombucha or if you don't drink alcohol, it's a very low that's, a, that's an important part, too, about kombucha. It's very low-grade yeah. alcohol. Yeah, 0.5% typically or right around there. You can also make hard kombucha, which has become really popular now. But we really stick to you know, all-organic, raw, probiotic, rich, and dense uh, versions of kombucha. So beer kind of has its own idea as to when it's going to be done. Is kombucha, is it, is it a three-week thing, or is that the same thing where, ah, it's not quite ready yet, it, it kind of decides, or does it have kind of a time where it's like, yeah, this is about the same amount of time that it always takes to, to get it ready? It's pretty typical. As long as you keep the fermentation and the amount of oxygen you're exposing it to, uh, you can get it really, um, really spot on. And so it's about a three-week turn, typically, maybe a week or two if we're conditioning it on some different ingredients or something experimental or or uh, you know something like that, but typically it's around a three to four week. Again, because you want those microbes and that bacteria to still be teeming and thriving, because uh, that's the good stuff you want. It's a science. To me, the perfect merger between science and art, and that's why I really love it. I'm very process focused, but uh, I'm also very artistic, and I want to express myself through my beer, just as James does through his food. What's on that plate? What's in that pint glass is a representation of our mission as uh, you know. Uh, 
people who are passionate about food and yeah. beer, right? Yeah, and absolutely. so it's a nice merger um, between those two things, I think. And, and you can be as elementary uh, as you want about it, or you can be as intense and crazy about it as you want it to. Yeah. We're talking with Zach Topinski from Urban Rest Brewing Company in Ferndale. Um, we've got a couple fun questions for you as we're about to wrap it up. We've got about two minutes here. So what food is always in your refrigerator? I've got sourdough pizza. So I make sourdough pizza crust. I've always got a sourdough pizza crust. And so you can do so many different things with that actual crust, whether or not it's actually even pizza or whatever it ends up as. But I've always got a crust in there, especially being a new father, too. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I every week I'll just replenish it, you know, and uh, that's that's something that's my back, back up. That's a good one. Okay. If you had to eat at a fast food restaurant, which one would it be? Oh, sheesh. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say there's no option. Yeah, you got to. You're at like, you're at well, the restaurant row or a yeah. fast food row, I should say. Middle and that's of nowhere all there is in Missouri. There. <laughs> you got to eat. I got to go with Popeye's. Uh, that, that chicken sandwich has just been, it's been killer lately. Have so you I'm eaten that, that chicken Popeye's. I haven't, yeah. but Popeye's, I like Popeye's beforehand. So like, yeah, I, I, yeah. I'm sure it's great. I wanna... I'm waiting for James's rendition of the Popeye's <laughs> chicken yeah, sandwich. Well, yeah. I tell you what. I mean, honestly, we should go to Cuzzles and just eat <laughs> But hey, I, so adding on to the fast food question, what's your... Uh, go-to fast food beer? For me, it was always Stroh's. Stroh's? The uh, first beer I had, uh, my my papa, I'm Polish, and so uh, in that in his basement, you know, he had all these relics uh, of beer. He was really into beer. He brewed his own beer, made his own wine and things like that at home as well. Brandy, too. Um, but it's all about Stroh's. Good old Detroit hometown guy. You can find out more about Urban Rest Brewing at urbanrest.com. Our thanks to Zach Tupinski, to you for listening. We would like to thank LaMarca Prosecco for their support. From the hills of Veneto, Italy, you can never go wrong with Prosecco, whether it's in the spritz or drinking straight. Joan Isabella is our executive producer. Associate producers are Lisa Brancato and David Lyons. Production provided by Studios on the Pond and Rowan Nemisto. Original music by the Mallet Brothers. This is a production of Detroit Public Radio Station, WDET. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and join us as we explore the world of food and how to cook it right here on Essential Cooking.